medical marijuana patient and want to tell your story and be featured on the podcast, feel free to email me at IamCannabisSativa at gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up on Instagram at IamCannabisSativa1S. Also check out our website at IamCannabisSativa.com. On this website, we have blog posts, links to the archives of this podcast, and other videos from cannabis experts from many walks of the field. You can find and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Anchor FM, Stitcher, and the Google Play Music Store. Please rate and review us on iTunes, as rating and reviewing us will bump up the pod on their algorithm and put this podcast in front of even more eyeballs. We are no longer posting new episodes on SoundCloud for the time being, but please check out the other sources we mentioned as we are on there. Today is a special 2018 midterm election edition of the podcast. Since y'all, myself included, will be voting this time next week, I decided to enclose some helpful audio I got from last year's Canvas World Congress and Business Expo. As you know, I attended this year's CWCBE but was only able to attend one of the days and only only one of the conferences or two of them being as I had other obligations. This clip is is this clip is from a panel presentation Canvas Industry Political Updates and Insights. The panelists are Josh Sanderlin Esquire, partner at Co- Kogan Law Group attorney and lobbyist and the other person in the panel is Adrian Sneed Esquire Associate Counsel Whiteford Taylor Preston LLP formal, for, former former counsel of US Senator Jeff Merkley attorney and government relations professionals and and guys, remember to vote, and vote early if you can. We have one last episode before the election next Tuesday. Enjoy. It is actually kicked off to a committee where the committee is supposed to consider. But who's the members of those committees? They're also overwhelmingly majorities from states that should, you know, we should be seeing movement, if nothing else, on the committee level. We're seeing nothing. This one mystifies me. The bottom on the, on the left, the Veterans Affairs in the House. You know, there's a bill right now. I don't know, I mean, I'm sure several of you have noticed that. If you're a veteran, and Adrian actually wrote this legislation, if you're a veteran, you go to the VA, your doctor can't talk to you about cannabis. Can't well, do let it. me be clear, I wrote the legislation that would allow the VA yeah, to, to, to do it. <laughs> which, which passed the Senate and the House last year, but was stripped out by Republican leadership at the end. As an appropriation writer. Right. This is, I'm talking about the actual legislation itself. It's sitting in Veterans Affairs right now. It's got like a dozen, not even a dozen co-sponsors on it. Hardly anybody from the committee is a co-sponsor. And won't even get a hearing. Can't even get a hearing. We're talking about our veterans. This should be, if, if there's one issue that the country can actually come together over ever that I ever see on the Hill, it's still veterans. And yet, here we are. You know, So fortunately, there's actually a study going on right now. I think MAPS is doing a major study on the, uh, on, on PTSD, on the effects of cannabis on PTSD. So, but that's not gonna come out to 2020. In the interim, what, what are our vets? How can we get a hearing on this? How come we can't have experts in the field come and testify on it? And I mean, it's just, it's abysmal. And the only explanation that you can really have for this is, despite where they're from, they don't feel the need. Think about that. All right, there's a certain governor who drives me nuts because I love the guy and I think he's a great governor. Don't say that on the air. Uh, he's a great governor. However, uh, he plays the line where I don't really like cannabis, but it's okay for my state. Now, that's unacceptable. 
you either like it or you don't. And if you don't like it, let us know so we can vote you out of office. So we can actually run campaigns against you and start doing things. That's not what they do. They, they're trying to play it, play it, uh, play it both sides against the middle. That's not what they do. So what we gotta do is get more involved. So let me tell you what's going on in the Senate, and I'm gonna run through this quickly because I know folks have questions and we want to get to it. Um, there's a cannabis caucus in the House. It's bipartisan, by, and there's a, uh, a Senate unofficial bipartisan staff level working group, which I actually founded and organized. Um, they are both quite active, um, but they need to hear from you. They have, they have industry people come in, they have outside groups come in, they have governor's offices send representatives, and these are things that having organized lobbies, whether they're industry groups or lobbyists representing um, a number of uh, cannabis-related companies, can work with to shape legislation, to write legislation, and to move legislation. Um, there's a lot of bills out there now. We put this originally together in June, and we actually redid this slide because so many bills have been introduced since June. So we're just running over some topics, descheduling, rescheduling, exemptions from 280E, uh, veterans access, and again, protecting states with cannabis laws. Now, none of these bills have a chance of passing. However, some of them may pass as riders to appropriations. And when I say not have a chance, I mean this Congress until the 2018 election. Then I think everything's up for grabs again. Um, but you see a lot of, you know, despite the numbers in Congress, why aren't you seeing more action? Josh touched on it a little bit. But, you know, here are some reasons. The industry suffers from a historically pure, poor reputation and lack of coordination and serious lobbying efforts. From the time I left the Senate on April 14, we have a few really good lobbyists um, that come and talk to members and staff about this industry, but you're not seeing the type of caliber and quality that you see with other industries that are at the seven, eight, ten billion dollar level like this industry is. Um, you see a lot of legislative success coming from members who grew up, honestly, in the 60s, probably smoked pot themselves and think pot legislation, uh, pot regulation is ridiculous and something needs to be done, and they're taking action themselves. You have really good grassroots organizing groups and groups that are talking to the Senate, MPP, BPA, NCIA. Love all those guys, they have great information, they have great representation, but it's just not enough. Um, and you've seen major lobbyists and law firms stay out of this area because of the risk. There's very little PAC money as of the time I left. Um, and as an example, the NCIA PAC broke $100,000, I think, in 2016. This is pittance compared to what's spent up on the Hill. Um, so, there's a lot of actions needed. Um, we're going to leave a list up there, and I think uh, at this point we should just leave that list up there and start taking questions to uh, maximize the use of our time. John? Dealer. <laughs> so, we are both, so I'm at a, a law firm, we're both at law firms in Washington, and we are working to get lobbying clients in this industry. So we don't, we're not hired by anybody yet in the cannabis industry, and we've been doing some pro bono work. I've been doing some pro bono work on a uh, hemp uh, amicus brief to the Ninth Circuit on behalf of members of Congress. Um, and Josh and I both were here to explore what's out there, but uh, you know we can't go lobby on our own. We, we have to be hired by interested parties that want to come and, and have a story for Congress, to have a story to tell Congress. Well, I, I will add something into that, which is uh, yes and no. So I've been on the Hill for a number of years. Uh, most of my background has been in municipal governments, foreign governments, you know, Fortune 100-year companies. Uh, and uh, about, a, not, about a month ago, I made the leap and said, I'm leaving my large 
largest law firm in the country, and I'm going to go do this on my own. I'm going to join a very small firm who sees the upside and ignores the risk because this is a RICO issue. Right? I can make the argument that it's First Amendment protection, but it's a RICO issue still. Uh, that being said, yeah, I actually, I'm out there talking to people that I know, and I'm, I'm talking to people that I know on the Hill that I've known for years and saying, what are you hearing on this? You know, tell me what, I was at a, this DC, right? So in DC, you're always on. Right? So I'm at a cocktail party for the Welsh Embassy of all places. I run into the staffer who's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I just left my job, I'm doing this. And he turns out to be one of the former head staffers for the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and just starts spouting stuff off at me. And you know, uh, insane stuff, but something about, uh, something I never heard at the time, which I, I'm looking at right now, I'll be honest, but the study in Pueblo about the hospital and the babies with THC in their systems. And he like told me it had been in Denver and it was like this astronomical number. Turns out it's like, you know, misinformation, that's everywhere. That's half of our job is like dealing with misinformation. It was like a study that looked at one month in Pueblo County at a hospital that had 11 births and five of them, like less than half of them actually had some trace amounts of THC in their system. Notwithstanding the fact that we don't know what, what that effect is, you know, but you know, I didn't even deal with that issue. But that being said, you know, one of the issues I'm working on right now is the issue I was talking about earlier, which is the vets. The vets are really the ones who need a lot of help. Sorry, I'm going to next. Next, somebody else has a question.
So I actually went to a talk at a, at a, a Boston law firm with some big investors. And uh, part of what's stopping, I think, the investors that are in this space from doing it is lack of knowledge about how Washington, D.C. actually works. Most people in finance have kept far away from Washington. Um, but the other thing is you're also, the types of investors you're seeing are family offices. They are not institutional banks and hedge funds and other people, uh, at least from what I've seen. And so, Right, I'm wondering why that part of it, I realize that it's, that it's all angel investors here, yeah. but why It's why too dangerous. They, I mean, they're putting yeah. their money at risk, and why do that when they're getting, you know, as, assuming they're getting good growth in other areas, they're going to wait until this industry is legal and then swoop in and take it, is my sense. I mean, the biggest players in that industry are going to be the banks, right? And the banks are staying out of it right now. The banks, remember 2008, the banks are still dealing with Dodd-Frank fallout. They're still dealing with a lot of stuff. They're, their, their capital's going somewhere, and they're willing to let the industry figure it out for themselves, and they come in and swoop it in here. What that's what it should be. The question you really should be asking, the question I always ask, the banks and credit unions that are in this space are not organized and do not have good organized lobbying. We met with banks from, we met with MAPS Credit Union in Oregon, and that was basically it. You know, There weren't a lot of people coming knocking down our door saying, please get this done, or how can we help you get this done? Well, they're also charging you a premium for using their accounts. And that's so true as because well. Because it's illegal, there's another vested interest you gotta worry about. Not, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, you have to convince them why it's in their interest. We, we all have to do that as an industry. We have to convince people why this is in their interest. We've spent, you know, decade upon decade upon decade being told that cannabis is bad. Drugs are bad, okay? You know, they just come right after you. And so now, we, when I go to the Hill, the things that come out of people's mouths are just ridiculous. And you I spent half my time just fighting that argument. <coughs> so, you know, it, sorry. <laughs> I, I get on my high horse, sorry. Yes, ma'am. Um, so, what about uh, CBD? Like, there's now genetics that are literally a cannabis plant, but legally in this country, there's no THC. And mm -hmm. trading, like, making sales, shipping around the world, is that a safe thing to do? Yeah, right now with CBD, that's hemp? This is quite funny. I, Literally before I walked into this room, I was on a conference call with a law firm. Um, I'm working with a group of hemp folks to go lobby members to get on a, a brief to the Ninth Circuit. And so what's happened is um, Senator Merkley and Senator McConnell in 2014 inserted language into the Farm Bill, making very clear what is industrial hemp and what is marijuana, and putting more or less a wall. The DEA, uh, as an agency, is very difficult to deal with, and they've never respected this. And so. Um, while that language opens the door to hemp, depending on how you do it, um, the, the DEA is still enforcing against hemp. And it's, it's very odd because as one of the folks I'm working with tells me, um, US Customs and, and, and Immigration allows him to ship hemp into the country, but then DEA tells him he's at risk of having it seized. And so right now it's still, I think it's much safer than medical and much safer than recreational, but the DEA has taken a focus on hemp for reasons I don't understand. And I think this, this court case in the Ninth Circuit is gonna be really determinative um, of where the hemp industry is uh, versus the marijuana industry. As far as lobbying goes, um, there are hemp lobbyists out there, uh, but uh, you know, even, even as, as a staffer told me two weeks ago, the marijuana industry lobbyists are, are generally you know, not um, up to par with, say, the financial industry. But they make the hemp industry lobbyists 
look like, the hemp industry lobbyists make the marijuana industry lobbyists look like absolute experts. So there's, you know, there are people that are trying real hard and they're doing good work and they are getting things done, but they're getting things done despite these, um, you know, lack of professionalism in some senses, but just, just the folks that have been involved. And I don't want to denigrate anybody. They're, they're, what's amazing to me is how much they've been able to do despite these challenges. So having real professionals in the room and folks who know the Hill and know this arena, um, I think can break, uh, can be the straw that breaks the camel back and, and allows hemp and marijuana um, legislation to really start moving in the next two to four years. So as a lawyer, the answer is it depends. There was no anti-lobbying campaign except for this one group associated with was it Robert Kennedy, one no, of the Kennedys. Uh, yeah, one of the Right, right. He he's the only anti-group out there. Patrick Kennedy. Patrick Kennedy. He's the only only folks lobbying against it. But other industries are not really bothered by this or focused on it at all. They have their own issues. Yeah, and tobacco has got its own. I mean, I mean, I think tobacco is going to look to this as a big issue soon. Uh, North Carolina is one of the pilot states for. Uh, that being said, it, this is you're on your own. I mean, this industry is on its own. Um, I, I have heard scuttlebutt that some other industries are interested in getting involved, but mostly as a transition into the industry, not to help the lobbying effort. I mean, you, you're not. People have their own. These other industries have all their uh, mess of problems that they're having to deal with as well. So they're not willing to stick their neck out for something they don't even really understand. Um, a couple of things. One would be. Um, <clears throat> Uh, if you could touch on again and just describe the Rohrbacher Blumenauer or what used to be Rohrbacher Farr, and so it's Leahy's amendment coming from the Senate, and then we've got the Rohrbacher, well, that's gone, okay. And so it's the Leahy amendment now that we're all advocating for for pre-December, well, December 8th so needs to be attached, the right? Rohrbacher was extended through December 8th, yeah, but thereafter. Right. Senator Mikulski, had, had, uh, who was from Maryland, had uh, been the champion in the Senate. Senator Merkley was actually going to take it over from her, but thankfully Senator Leahy, who is now the chairman of that committee, or I'm sorry, the ranking member, the ranking Democratic committee, decided he would take it over, and, and it passed in committee by a voice vote. By a voice vote, meaning one guy said no. No, no, nobody said no. I mean, the Republicans have conceded victory on this one in the Senate. Um, the House is a different story, and, and for the first time, and really due to pressure from the Attorney General, House leadership has decided not to hold a vote on this. And last time they did, on the floor, I think they got upwards of 250 votes, and it was overwhelming. Um, so that kind of tells you what the dynamic is, and 
they're going to have to negotiate this behind the scenes now, and we don't know what's going to happen. Now, what do you think the most likely result is? Tough to say. It really depends on who is behind the scenes in the House fighting yeah. this. Um, yeah. It was done behind closed doors and the House Rules Committee. So basically, a bill comes to the committee, then it goes to what's called the House Rules or the Senate Rules Committee, which then sets the agenda for how the, full, the floor votes will go. And it just says things are in order and things are not in order. And it was ruled, it, they, uh, they, they took up, they took up like, they took up like, yeah, they took up, took up like seven amendments, ruled them all in order, took a break, came back and ruled everything else out of order. And so it got, it got, it got shuffled out. Uh, so the question is, who did that and why? Uh, and was it from Brian, because Brian doesn't want his caucus taking a vote on this, because he's got people who are just not gonna do it? Or was it just, you know, somebody on the rules committee who were fit and they decided, well, the Senate will carry the water. The question is, and the other question is, how hard is Lady going to fight? You would think hard because it's states running states, but you know, it, it's anybody's guess right now, especially in this, this criminal time case. You know, um, so it's it's, it's it's a coin toss. Yeah, I, I give it, I give, I, I give it a little up, sixty forty. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> right? Because it's so important. As a follow-up, just uh, ways that you could help, uh, for example, my clients in Maine. Um, would you be open, you've mentioned talking to the DEA, for example, talking to the local US attorney in Maine, um, and then to banks. We have one bank that is doing business with marijuana companies explicitly, yep. and they're debating getting into lending. They, they haven't started yet, but they're on the, they have been on the cusp for the past four or five months. So maybe that's something that you could be hired for to team up with a local person like myself to help explain to these either trade groups like the value of the federal lobbying, um, and then help with trying to pull down the curtain on what their plans, what the criminal prosecution so, plans. So on the be. U.S. attorneys, I will tell you this: um, when I was working for Senator Murphy, I tried to meet with our U.S. attorney in Oregon three times, and I was rejected three times. Yeah. Generally, the U.S. attorneys themselves won't meet with you. Maine Justice will meet with you. DEA will meet with you. Um, certainly, the banks and industry groups would be more than happy to meet with, um, and then discuss. You know go to Maine Justice, go to DEA headquarters and try to have discussions with them. Um, but the, the best way to interact with those agencies uh, is both direct and through members. So mm -hmm. for example, Maine's got a couple great members of Congress um, that have really been on the fence about this stuff. Susan Collins, if she became a big advocate, would be enormous yeah. on the Senate side. She controls what goes on in the Republican Senate. Yeah, she's huge, yeah. It's huge, Right. so uh, right. you know, my advice to anybody living in Maine is to organize and try to get in front of Susan Collins and, and, and you know, go to campaign events. Do everything you possibly can to bring her along. I can tell you that Senator Merkley and Senator Collins had discussions about this, but we were never able to get her as a co-sponsor on any of our bills. Mm. And uh, I will say that I think she is gettable, but it's gonna take a lot of work by her constituents. So, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sir? Um, I, a couple months ago, I went to the um, Cannabis Cup in um, Michigan, and um, I hear that, that there are efforts in Michigan to, to, lead, to get um, recreational marijuana on the ballot in 2018. And, and being as they're like a swing state, um, do you think that they, like, if they were to do it next November, that they are going to be the domino that... Florida. Florida has 27 electoral votes. Florida is a bellwether state for the presidential elections. Florida is now legal. Now it's medical marijuana. It's, it's changed nothing. 
Because we've actually seen a regression. Because that's normally what you see in a regression. I mean, yeah. <coughs> yeah. I mean the, the state government's done a lot to slow down the implementation of it, which doesn't help in Florida. Oh, no. Right? I mean, oh, the no smoke thing? Ugh. Yeah. So, I mean, let me, let me expand. What, what's needed is states like Florida, you have buy-in from the populace, but you don't have buy-in from the politicians yet. In states where you do, along the West Coast, in Colorado, what you see is governor's offices coming and making phone calls directly to senators uh, and representatives. And you see the, kind of this higher level of lobbying that's pretty obvious, like the state government's going to talk to their senators, the state government's going to talk to their representatives. They get engaged, and that helps move the process along. To the best of my knowledge, you're not seeing that yet from states like Florida. So even if Michigan goes, my next question is, great, the population did it, but do the politicians hear that? Yeah. Does it matter? Yeah. And you don't even see the Florida delegation here involved too heavily. You see a couple members from South Florida. You actually see a member from North Florida in the panhandle getting involved. Uh, but on the, on, by and large, you know, you're not, despite the 71%, you're not seeing them delegates. It's not transiting, that's what I was trying to say earlier. We see all these huge public shifts, and no matter what the state's doing, we're not seeing it translate into action because people are just looking inward and saying, well, my state's doing this, and I can do it, and screw the government. Well, we can, we can push that outward, and that's what we really gotta do. This gentleman, that gentleman. So if you imagine Gotham, what, what, what comes from, what does that look like afterwards? Are there like sweeping shift letters, or you know, are, is something stronger? say yes things are going to change I actually don't know I, it, all it's going to do is take the handcuffs off DEA right. and so they're going to be open to doing whatever they want yeah, I was saying yes that all that's possible <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say that necessarily it goes away on December 8th and all of a sudden Jeff Sessions is taking down the door in Colorado I don't I don't I don't think it'll be that quick it'll start probably what, what, you'll, what you may see is slow duking it out let's, let's grab one and see what happens let's but grab We both agree with that. We've had this conversation that what the industry obviously needs is a wake-up call because they think that, that they're so safe. But why do that? Why not just organize and start being a voice on the Hill, a voice and, and, and taking what you're seeing in the states and translating that to the Congress? I mean, it's 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 not hard. It's just got to work. Gentleman back there. This goes away. Look, if you're a recreational licensee right now, there's nothing protecting you. I mean, you are at risk. If you're a medical licensee and only doing medical, this 
gives you protection from DEA enforcement to the extent you're complying with state law. And, and what the Ninth Circuit, what the court decision has said is basically like, is basically, if, if you, the government, federal government, can't prove that they were violating a state law first, then you cannot bring a federal action. So if this goes away, that protection goes away. And, and for what it's worth, the idea that you can do something and then all of a sudden, because it goes away, you switch, doesn't make what you did prior illegal. I mean, it's still illegal. It was still illegal. The only thing stopping you is not, it's not, the federal law doesn't say what you're doing is not illegal. It's just saying the government can't spend money to come after you. As soon as that prohibition goes away, the legality, every time you go to your dispensary, or every time you make a transaction and it's been signed or you've gotten your card, you are actually, it's called its called an admission, right? Admission is what it's called. You've admitted you've broken, broken the law. Yeah. If you have a medical marijuana uh, uh, prescription or a, a recommendation that's been acted on, you have broken federal law. It's a question of whether you're gonna be prosecuted. To that point, you asked a question about local law enforcement and how that would work. I think you would see the same thing you're seeing with immigration rates, where local law enforcement doesn't want it to happen, but they're doing it anyway. Because well, then, then what the federal government does is ties all your funding to your prosecutions of it to your helping out. That's how they get immigration straight. You're going to lose your burn justice grants. You're going to lose all your, just, your, your, uh, your access to justice grants. And, and asset forfeiture. And I, represented, I represented Miami-Dade County for a long time. They have this big issue about sanctuary cities. And you know, when they're when you're being told you're going to lose tens of millions of dollars, <coughs> despite you're complying with federal law, because somebody said it's not. You know, there's actually just a little <coughs> side note. There is no definition of sanctuary city. It does not exist. It is just a political term used by both sides. It doesn't exist. I've been to DHS, sat there with them, talked to ICE. Like we don't know what it is. But they're still going after me. Uh, Sorry, am I missing anybody on the side of the room just because I'm not looking at it? And this lady, so. How do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> this gentleman over here. Or, I'm sorry, this gentleman over here. <laughs> See? Just quick, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Vermont's the only state that has passed recreational marijuana legislation. And the governor vetoed it. Gotcha. And they've created a commission to look at it. Have any other states tried it? And doesn't that kind of change the landscape because it is coming from a politician, not Senator, I'm not. I'm directly elected by the populace now. You know, uh, the population. You know, it, it looks worse. What you're going to see is a better program rolled out because the politicians, unlike Florida, where the people want it and the politicians don't, you're going to see an actual system rolled out that is well thought out, hopefully, and, and it's going to it's going to be a smoother transition process. But politically, I, I think it makes less of a case for the, for the Congress. Gentlemen. Yeah, you mentioned.
part of the industry becoming more professional. We did a fly-in and I put Senator Merkley in a room with 30 people in the industry, either growers, um, security companies, credit union folks. They did this great fly-in. We had great people. They're all in suits looking so professional. And I swear to God, we were going to get a contact high in that room. It was so <laughs> weak. And it's just, you know, and I didn't ever want to put him in a room again with people like that because you just can't do that. And NCIA uses this story now to tell their members, don't do that. But it's, it's the part, it's, you know, all part and parcel of where the industry needs to go. I think NCIA's lobby is great, but what you need is constant communication with officers. So yes, bringing people in once a year um, is, is really good for the association and showing the association's members something's going on. But from the Hill perspective, I want you to do that every year, but as a staffer, I hate doing it because it's just a waste of my time. I want to talk to your, organize, your organization's top, upper echelons know what's really going on, and the only thing a lobby day does is show me that you actually represent people, which is important and good, but you're also going to see that from uh, fundraisers, PAC money, different things. So th so I think it's good to get folks out there to talk to their members of Congress as citizens and to put the kind of period on this, but um, as far as I know, only NCIA is doing it out there in this group. MPP and DK Day might, uh, and I don't know about normal, I never saw normal, but I understand that they Minority Cannabis Business Association was just in D.C. the other day. They met with uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus. It was a very good day. Um, you know, there are some, you know, there are some <coughs> hiring, some of the more high-tech, you know, companies that are getting, you know, elected, uh, you know, there are some companies that come up and are hiring little, hiring lobbyists to argue just one little thing here and there, but they're not really, you're not really seeing, you know, a mass effort, you know, and it's not really, Except from these groups. These Except, groups no, are. I'm talking about yeah. one-offs. They're doing one-offs. Um, you know, but I will circle back to Adrian's point, you know, and we talked about this earlier. The industry has a perception problem. We are we are having an uphill battle. You know, we're battling, you know, years of dare programs, kids my you know, people my age. You know, we're, we're fighting, you know, the people, you know, came out of the sixties and, and realized that we can start saying it was horrible. And it was worth fighting that. And so to walk in wearing a, a marijuana flag cape is a problem.
I don't know that it would it would have much of an effect on our federal government. The State Department takes the, the United States is part of a um, international treaty on narcotics, which actually spells out marijuana. And unlike many countries, including Canada, the State Department and the State Department Legal Advisors Office have taken a very strict reading of that. And I don't know that that's going to change until you get a legal advisor in there that is willing to be a little more liberal with their reading. And it's it's been something we we had to deal with on some of these issues where we asked the State Department for an opinion, we got a very negative opinion back. We got like. Despite Congress telling them they can't do it, that, that's what we're saying. And so, while you're making those people on the Hill have no idea, when I say they don't, their arms are out of effect, your international system even is. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. They, they you know. Uh, let, let me give one overarching message about speaking to, to members of Congress and their staff. Member, congressional funding has gone down for the last 30 years to hire staff. You have smaller staffs now than you did in 1980. Staff have no time to do original research. They have no time to do much of anything other than listen to people, read, you know, Google and find out what's out there and talk to lobbyists who come in who know the industry. Lobbying has gotten a very bad reputation. I had a terrible image of what lobbyists did until I worked on the Hill. And then I realized lobbyists are your best friend because they, they get to spend all the time and know everything about an issue that you really should be, but you don't have the time to do. So when I had a question, and I knew good lobbyists, I would call them and say, give me the honest answer to X, and they would. And you know, that's part of what this industry as an industry needs. It needs people that me as a Senate staffer could go to and say, I need a presentation, I need numbers from New Frontier because they have great numbers. You know, I need, I need one of your, your great presentations that you give because I need to make an argument to a member and I need to put it in your brief. And I need to be able to make that phone call. I don't know anybody I could make that phone call to right now. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, there are people out there, and I know there are, but until you get in front of staff, and you're in front of staff enough, it's not just a matter of being there once. They gotta trust you, they gotta know you, they gotta have your cell phone number. And that's part of what the industry is lacking right now. I wanna say, these guys are doing a great job, and they carry a lot of water. And, yeah. But they need help. They're doing yeoman's work. Uh, but it is, I think, almost booze time. So we will, we, will, we will call it quits. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming out. We really enjoyed it. We will be around. If you have more questions, I'm not going anywhere. I think we're, we're supposed to go to room 110 for, for post.